It's time to register for the annual Insure Justice Conference at Vanguard University's Global Center for Women and Justice. The conference is always the first Friday and Saturday of March. That way, you can make it a recurring event in your calendar. 2024, it's March 1st and 2nd. We're just a couple of months away. Our theme is keeping our children safe online. We will explore the issues. What is happening online? What are the risks for our children at this stage of their development? What can we do as parents, caregivers, teachers, community members? Our speakers include many of our podcast expert guests, and we are partnering with our Orange County Department of Education. Check out our website for more info, and don't miss the early bird rates. Go on over to gcwj.org forward slash justice right now. There is a virtual option for our global listeners, as well as special rates for college students. Join us to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference at Insure Justice, March 1st and 2nd, 2024. You are listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 312. How does intersectionality inform our response to human trafficking? And we're talking with Kevin Bales. My name is Dr. Sandy Morgan. This is the show where we empower you to study the issues be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Joining us today is Dr. Kevin Bales, a professor of contemporary slavery and co-founder of Free the Slaves, a nonprofit organization that works to end slavery worldwide. Dr. Bales has written several books and articles on modern slavery human trafficking, and climate change. Kevin advocates for a holistic and inclusive approach to ending slavery that takes into account the diverse needs and perspectives of the enslaved and the liberated. He comes to us now from Nottingham, where he directs the Rights Lab. Kevin Bales, welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. Danny, it's great to be here. I am so excited to have you in our podcast lineup now because for years I've followed you, I've learned from you. I remember when the first estimate of how many slaves there are came from your office, 27 million. How does it make you feel that the current stats kind of, the current stats that were out this last year pretty much verified that guesstimate all those years ago? Well, it's a bit larger number, the the number now that's just come out, not quite doubling it. 
but I have to say, I know that to be a better methodology. My my methodology was was in many ways very weak, and and it was just the best we could pull together at a time when nobody else was really trying to do that. And and while people read about it in my book, Disposable People, where I put that number out, most people then didn't read the academic article that I published in parallel, explaining all the problems and all the deficiencies of my estimate, because I wanted to be totally honest about that. I read that. I read that. Oh, good on you. Yes, yes, I did. Because I I would constantly, people, I was task force administrator here in Orange County, first grant for federal funding, and people wanted numbers. And it's like, there's no one raising their hand. There's no census um, these are these are estimates, and so I I read every word of the academic side, and actually, that kind of leads into my first question here because you've dedicated your life to and your career to fighting slavery and human trafficking. Why did you choose an academic platform as your field of battle? I, I I don't know if I chose an academic platform in the sense that I was already an academic. So it wasn't like I said, okay, now I'm, I want to take on slavery, so I guess I'll become a, a lecturer or a, or a professor. I had already been doing that. You know, I had been very enamored with the, the with a life of the mind as a university student, and then a grad student, then a doctoral student, and then on and on like that. Um, so I felt the tools that I had to bring to bear were, yes, I could talk and I could think, but I could also write and I could also do analysis. And I was used to working in statistics and that kind of thing. So it was really just turning the tools that I had to the job at hand and learning quite a few other tools as well. So for young people now, joining in an academic setting, what do you say to them as they begin to mold their career? Because we're doing, this is, we're going to be handing this off to to the next generation. Oh, we're very much doing that right now. And I'm so excited about a lot of the handing off I get to do to the next generation of abolitionists and anti-slavery workers. And one of the things that I get to say to them is, we're now in, at that place where we can really proliferate across technologies, techniques, theories, systems, all sorts of ways of analyzing and understanding. And what I really hope and what I encourage is that they just surpass me as quickly as they can. And I have to say, I've got some colleagues, young colleagues, who whose work in, for example, predictive mathematics and machine learning that they apply to satellite imagery and things like that. I get the big picture notion of what they're talking about. But in terms of understanding how they do what they do, they've lost me completely. And I think that's great. Oh, that's inspiring. So so you and I started a conversation um, during this holiday break about intersectionality in the battle to combat slavery and human trafficking. And, and I think this deserves more exploration. So can you give us kind of a a 30,000 foot level concept for intersectionality? Certainly. And it's, it's actually a pretty easy thing to to talk through. It's just that 
if you treat something like contemporary forms of slavery, human trafficking as only itself, and you're not looking at the the impacts, the drivers, the things that mush it and move it around, you're not going to understand how it fits together with the other serious and significant problems that we face. One of the things that woke me up and quite a few years ago was sitting down with Vandana Shiva, who's a very well-known environmentalist leader and researcher in India. And we were talking about the same area of India where both of us had worked. And she was talking about how environmental destruction was driving local villagers out of their space, out of their livelihoods, and making them incredibly vulnerable to debt bondage slavery. And I had been meeting the same, in a sense, people, not exactly the individuals perhaps, but I'd been meeting the same groups of people who had been pushed out and were caught up in this hereditary sometimes form of debt bondage slavery. And we we looked at each other and it was a funny moment, but we looked at each other and it was like a big penny dropped in both of our minds. And we realized, wait, you've got the drivers on that side. I've got the impact on the other side. And yet I can also tell you that a number of the people that I've been studying who are caught up in slavery are being forced to destroy the natural world in the same area that we're both talking about. Now, that was a kind of a true revelation about intersectionality for me. The idea that we could say there are people caught up in slavery who are being forced to destroy the natural world. But the destruction of that natural world is, in fact, pushing people into situations of enslavement. And then, of course, when you look a little bit closer, that's it's not a two-handed game. It's a three-handed game. And the third hand is all about where do the products go? Where do the where do the 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 produce go? The environmental impacts? What do they have down the line and so forth? Where does it fit into global supply chains? And all of a sudden, it's everywhere. But it's all linked back and tied back to the fundamental notions of what happens when you put people in situations of enslavement, and then of course use them to destroy the environment, and then use that destroyed environment to make profits, often in a criminal way. So. Can you give us a, a really simple example, concrete? Sure. I mean, one of the areas that I then, when I went out to then really document this deeply, and I and I ended up writing this book called Blood and Earth, which is about a deep documentation of this. One of the places that I went was down to the bottom of Bangladesh. And, and at the bottom of Bangladesh, there's a huge area of of kind of a swampy, beautiful mangrove forest area, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. In other words, it's supposed to be protected in all ways. It should never be messed with. No one should be living there. It should be kept very importantly pristine, not least for two key reasons. One is that that UNESCO World Heritage Site called the Shundrabans Forest is the, is the largest carbon sink in all of Asia. In other words, of all the CO2 emitted across Asia, this is the most important part of the natural world, which is sucking that CO2 out of the the atmosphere and putting it back, actually back and fixing it into seawater, which is what mangroves do. But what did I find when I went there? I found big chunks of this protected forest, which is supposed to be protected in all sorts of ways internationally, had been carved out to put in fish processing camps. And children 
were the ones who had been lured and tricked and enslaved in that horrific, exploitative and and often violent control to do all this processing of fish brought every day by fishing boats who didn't really quite notice or, or chose not to notice what was going on in the fish processing camp. And in the fish processing camp, these children, these almost all boys, they were dying at a fast rate. They were getting really ill with different diseases. They were they were often very hungry, but and they, they were always complaining to when I talked to some of them later about diarrhea. They were constantly having diarrhea. But here's here's the again, uh, for me, one of those moments when the whole thing started to open up and make something clear to me was I when I asked them, but what was your other health problem? when you were caught in this fishing camp and doing this and enslaved to do all this fish processing. And they said, oh, that it was being be- eaten by tigers. Oh. Well, my jaw fell open. And I said, wait, wait, eaten by tigers? And they said, yeah, I mean, a lot of people died of diarrhea, but a lot of people died of a guy being eaten by tigers. And I was like, what is this? How is this possible? And then, of course, I learned that one of the reasons the Schunderbunds UNESCO World Heritage Site is a heritage site is because it's like the last perfect breeding ground that's protected for Bengal tigers. But when the criminal slaveholders go in and cut the woods down, the forest down, the, the mangrove forest down, the tiger that lives there and they're territorial can't just like go off and fight other tigers to, to get their space. And what Fundamentally, the slaveholders were doing were driving out little small deer and other animals from the from the hunting ground of a Bengal tiger, their territory, and but replacing those deer and other small animals with small boys who became the prey of the Bengal tigers. And it was almost as if for those criminal slaveholders that that was just one of those sort of attrition sort of problems that you have when you have a business that sometimes some of your sometimes some of your fish processors will just be eaten by tigers and they just moved on and didn't really think much about it. Okay, that's a horrific story. But you can see where you begin to put slavery, environmental destruction, protected and endangered species, which then endanger small children who are forced to do the the work, which is part of the environmental destruction. And then when I asked, so where does all this fish go? They said, oh, it, it's almost all of this is kind of low-grade fish. It's processed into a kind of of, of meal of, of sorts, a kind of mash of, of fish meat, which then is shipped off to North America and Europe as cat food. Oh. So... It was usually when I talked about this in public venues, and I'd say, "Who's got a cat?" Right, <laughs> and and this wow. kind of shock of it when it begins to realize that the permute the permeation of this is so insidious that the cat that you love as your pet is somehow feeding as well as the tigers did off the off these poor little kids. Okay. So now you've painted this very concrete picture for us, and we understand that within the context of intersectionality. But what do we do? Are there best practices? How do we actually do something to counter that? This is a tough one for that particular situation. 
Uh, because yes, there's a supply chain, and it, it's very under, and it's not a hard supply chain to grasp, but it's a very hard supply chain to police. And one of the key reasons for that is that, as they tell you in Bangladesh, the most powerful organization is might be the national government, but it might also be what they call the shrimp mafia, because the shrimp mafia export fish and shrimp from Bangladesh to the tune of billions and billions of dollars every year. They ship it all over to Western Europe and all over to North and South America. And for that reason, even when we were able to expose this and work with people, say, in the tip office in the United States, and we got the tip ambassador to go and talk to them, talk to the government in Bangladesh and so forth, there would be these minor little changes and these minor little adjustments, but then pretty quickly things would go back to normal. And we've not really been able to crack it. In other words, of actually getting past the power of what amount to mafias and gangs who can control this rural, raw and rural area down in, the, in a protected national forest. So it's a tough one. And if anything, I suppose it would have to take a global campaign to make clear that shrimp and fish that come from there are is dirty and bloody and needs to be inspected to the point that you that you move away from it, right? And and again, that that would require quite a large input and a lot of and a lot of public awareness and a willingness to give something up. That yes. is part yes. of our our culture, and we think it's just normal to be able to go to the grocery store and pick up this particular item, and we don't think about where it was before it arrived. In and, our... and you know, it's come on us. You're, you're right; it is part of our lives, but it didn't used to be. You know, I'm, I think I'm old enough. I remember when if you ate if you ate shrimp, it was like four little shrimps around the, a, a special little crystal glass of cocktail sauce or something. It was really fancy stuff that happened only in fancy restaurants. And the, and the shrimp back then were coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. But when it be, they began to build these enormous ships that were freezer ships, and they could load them with tons and tons of shrimp that have been partially peeled and then put into these plastic bags, all of a sudden the cost of shrimp fell to the floor, but not so far that people weren't making profits. So in a sense, we've just accepted the the happy cornucopia of seafood that is not very expensive that we can buy in big freezer bags. But we've done that because we didn't really know what was going on. So one of the things that I love about doing this work from an academic platform is that you measure it. You talked about statistics and the old adage is you can't manage something you can't measure. So mm. how can we use your research to mobilize an effective response? And who who are the actors that need to? So in intersectionality, then we're not just talking about government. Who else? Well, it's got to be a lot of the companies, the companies and then the retailers that would have to be brought on board with this. And yet what we know is that even if we brought the retailers on, say Walmart suddenly said, okay, 
we're going to look at every bit of shrimp. We're going to make sure we don't get any nasty shrimp imported into our freezers and stuff like that. They could do that, but it's ubiquitous, the, the seafood. And there are, it would take a long time to find the right or all to get everybody on board to, to in fact, do what's necessary. Now, at the same time, I, after I uncovered all this and I was able to start working with other people in the Wrights Lab, where I work at the University of Nottingham, we have a whole team that just works with satellites and satellite imagery and Earth observation. And one of the first things that they ever did was I talked to them and said, look, here's a picture of people on the ground in one of these shrimp processing and fish processing camps. And it's horrific. And I told them about the tigers and so forth. And I said, but look, I went to Google Earth and I, here's a picture of it from space. So I knew where I was because I took my GPS coordinates when I was there. So that's what it looks like from above. And I said, could you look? I mean, you guys are special satellite people. You know, what do you got? What can you tell me just from, from this? And they said, well, let, let's get back to you in a week. And a week later, they said, okay, did you know about the 12 other camps? And I was like, no, no, that's, I didn't know there were 12 other camps. And they said, yeah, well, there are. And they're all operating in basically the same way. And they said, did you know about the movement of camps over the last 15 to 20 years as they as uh, as global warming has has raised sea level levels and, and had forced some of the camps to move. And I was like, amazing. I, no, I had no clue about this because I was just pushing around on a boat right down in the swampy area. And they suddenly said, oh, yes. OK, so so here's here's the real challenge is that it's not about one camp. It's about 12 camps or at least 12 camps. And then they keep moving them when they find a better place and so forth. So. If you had the ab ability to bring in law enforcement, say, to bust these camps, it, it would be a remarkable change. But the situation in Bangladesh has been that law enforcement are very reticent to take on what they call the shrimp mafia. And, and it's going to take a lot to and, and possibly a change in government to make that happen. Wow. So then the strategies that we're left with are pretty much civil society type yes. strategies. What does that look like? Well, in many ways, it's got to be just about education, education, education. I mean, I think I think if, if we could somehow put that story out there in a way that it just kept being repeated and understood and repeated and understood and, and start all of a sudden shrimp started having a really bad taste in your mouth, we could begin to see a diminution of the purchase of these billions of dollars worth of multi zillion tons of, of shrimp and fish that come over to North and South America and, and Europe. But it's a big one because you'd have to literally be addressing all of the people who eat in all of the countries that have these these food imports. From all over the place. So let me ask you this question. How successful do you see the like the chocolate scorecard and things like that that we've done with in the cocoa plantation realm? Is that something we can mirror? Yes, I think we can. With one there's a couple of, of, of ways that it's different. I mean, I was I was around at the very beginning of of the of this concern about slavery in, in chocolate and cocoa farming, because the it was the film 
that we made with HBO based on my first book about this, Disposable People, where we went to Cote d'Ivoire, to the Ivory Coast, and we found, we didn't know we were going to find this because we were actually looking for something else, but we found a bunch of young teenagers from a neighboring country who had been lured into the Ivory Coast and then enslaved on a cocoa farm. And we were able to trace that cocoa and we were able to talk to the, even to the slaveholder. And we were able to talk to the young men after they came to freedom. And, and so we, we, we kind of blew up the story and it was a big, it led to this whole concern about slavery and cocoa, slavery and Christmas candy, children having chocolate and all that kind of thing. Now, the, in many ways, one of the most important outcomes of that was the founding of the International Cocoa Initiative. And that was a, that was a, Shotgun wedding. I know it sounds a funny thing to call it that, but there were senators in the American Senate who worked very closely with us. And one of them called all of the presidents of the chocolate companies in the United States together in Washington and said, Look, I'm just going to put this into a bill that will become a law that you have to have a, a label on all your chocolate that says there is no child slavery in this chocolate. And they said, Well, there's no way we can possibly do that because we simply don't know at this point. This is all new to us. And we didn't understand that there were these problems in the in the actual enslavement in cocoa. And he said, well, I don't know what to do. So he let them simmer for a little while. And then he said, okay, I tell you what, if you if you can't do that, what I do expect you to do, and this was actually our plan A, was you each have to put in about a million dollars a year into an NGO that will be run by anti-slavery specialists who also know about the cocoa world and who will begin to do the work on the ground in in, in the Ivory Coast and in Ghana uh, to go village by village and solve the problem. And that's what the International Cocoa Initiative does. It's not very flashy. It doesn't get a ton of coverage. But when I came off the board of the ICI after 12 years, I, I was one of the founder members, but I came off after 12 years and at that point, we were up to about 60% of all the cocoa regions that had that we'd been able to work through and kind of declare clean. And they were now working through the rest of them. And then, of course, you get Tony and Tony's Chocoloni yeah. and all his fantastic work in, a, in another way to make it in some ways a lot more fun than the International Cocoa Initiative ever made it as, as he originally went and bought when he saw our film he went and bought a lot of chocolate there where he grow, lives in in the netherlands and uh, went to a police station because he had discovered that there was a, an old 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 law in the netherlands that you shouldn't buy things made by slave labor so he bought a bunch of chocolate went to a police station and then turned himself in and he said i want you to arrest me i violated the law i bought this this slave this slave made cocoa and they were like what <laughs> what they didn't know about the law or anything. And he called me, actually, this is years ago, and said, I want, and he said, Kevin, I want you to come over and testify against me in my trial. I love that. Yeah, I loved it too. But I did say, I don't think you need me, <laughs> Tony. I honestly don't. Plus, I won't understand everything. Everything's going to be in Dutch. So I think, I think you've got all the facts and figures you need. But, but, wow. he, you know, he's, he's done it in a, on a consumer way that has been super powerful. And then there are some chocolate companies that haven't done too well, right? right. So there have been some American companies that were that were superb on it, like Mars and like Hershey's, but they were also companies that then later went public 
And so they were bought up by investors and not the family-run companies. When I when I first met people from Mars, I met old man Mars. He was the elderly man who still owned the company and ran it with his sons. And they he had very clear feelings that this was a moral problem, not an economic problem, and that you had to solve the moral problem. But of course, in time, when when the world began to to let investing become and and hedge funds buy up whole companies like that, you began to lose a lot of the of the moral direction. And so we're not done yet with with slavery and cocoa, but we're a lot closer than we might have been, and that we're and we're a million miles ahead of any questions about shrimp or fish. And one of the things that you said in the beginning of this part of the conversation, you used the word luring these kids here. And so I've seen a lot of, and I'm using air quotes, prevention strategies that are aimed at putting the responsibility on the child not to fall victim to being lured. Mm. And Mm -hmm. here are the red flags. Can you address the problem with that? Oh, well, I mean, it sounds like a lovely idea. I think if you're a middle-class American who's got a good bit of education, but if you if you're talking about the families that the, like those kids in Bangladesh, you know they their their parents are illiterate. They live in fear often of just the big wigs around them in the countryside. And then there's the fact that the kids are often hungry in the families who are doing this agricultural work not that far away. And when somebody comes along and seems to be educated and nice and friendly and says, you know, your son, if he could come and work for a few months and here's an advance, we can give you an advance on, on his pay and he'll be back within three months and and so forth. It's one of those it's one of those really tough choices, isn't it? Yeah. That any parent yeah. would have to face if they said, I could get a situation where my kid could earn some money and actually get enough to eat and maybe there's some open some opportunities, but I can't really be certain. And so they give in because they think maybe they're doing the right thing. And that's when I think possibly some of that that preventative work that you could do on the ground could help, but you'd have to find them, right? You'd have to work your way up and down the riverbanks. You'd have to work your way all over the the agricultural part of lower Bangladesh, for example. I mean, it, it would be it would be quite an enormous task in lots of different languages as well. Which is which is not a reason not to do it, but it, it would also be about how you made that penetration and how you could convince them there was something else to that, that, that in a sense could could stand in the stead of this tricky way of luring somebody into exploitation, and you could give them an alternative, and it, which could be a school. I mean, we I work with a group that does a lot of building of schools in villages in India, in northern India, up in Uttar Pradesh, villages that are in hereditary forms of collateral debt bondage, slavery. But it always, the process, it takes about three years to take a whole village from slavery to freedom, but it always begins with the insertion of a school, Mm. uh, which is, which is actually a Trojan horse. Because the, pe- the school teachers, the people who come to cook at the school, they're all themselves ex-slaves who have been through the same process of liberation and education. And they slowly begin to work with these people who have been in slavery for many generations. So they have no sense of freedom. They have no sense of what it's like on the outside world. They never left the village for generations. And it, so it takes, like I say, two to three years to 
finally reach that moment when someone who's been caught in lifetime of debt bondage slavery to say, wait, so your life wasn't like this. How do we do that? And mm -hmm. that's, of course, when the door opens and things begin po to be possible. Wow. There are so many things we could keep talking about, but I'm looking at the time. I'm going to put links to everything we've talked about in the show notes for our listeners. But I was struck years ago with the cover of one of your books. I think it was the Ending Slavery book because it had an Oprah magazine, quote, tempers horror with hope. And can you leave us with what are some of the emerging opportunities that give you hope now? I, I think one of the most powerful facts is that whether it's 27 million people in the world or 35 million people in the world or whatever, within a, a global population, which is now over 8 billion, we're actually dealing with a minority small problem. It's horrific, it's horrendous, it's ancient, it's deadly, but it's in in numerical terms, it's 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 a fairly marginal activity. And that actually does give me some hope because I realize that if we can bring people to really commit to the idea that you we don't have to live in a world with slavery, we can actually get rid of this because it's actually so small in in global terms, then we could do so. And of course, that flips back to the whole question of the of notions of intersectionality. You know, there's a there's a link between slavery and genocide, for example, which we've been exploring very strongly, and it's and it's absolutely there. There's a there are links between slavery and child and early enforced marriage, and there's a link between slavery and certain religious groups which, which use religion to take people and enslave them or justify slavery and so forth. There's there's a whole series of ways that this fits together into our highly complex but also highly human cultures. And I say multiple because it's all these different cultures and all these different peoples and ways of being. But nearly all of them are okay with the idea that freedom is a better notion than slavery, and except for a few, with some bad actors. And I think when we begin to understand the the warp and the weft in the woven fact of enslavement around us, we'll be able to unpick that and and help people see the right way out, whether it's through economics or or for, through faith and religion of a of a better <laughs> better type, as it were, or if it's about ending that environmental destruction and then giving ex slaves the job of replanting forests or replanting. A rebuilding environmental systems. I mean, that would be a that would that alone would would provide enormous amounts of work for people who have come out of slavery, and it would also be reducing our CO two load day after day, ton after ton, to the point that we might not have the global warming that we're all a little worried about. So, if we think big, and if we and if we think optimistically, which is hard occasionally, but I think that way. Uh, I, I don't see why we can't do this. I've been at this for, what, 35 years or something like that? And and the people in the past, they were on it for 100 years or, or 150 years when they were confronting things like transatlantic slavery. I hope and I like to think we're just getting warmed up. Mm, I totally agree with you. 
Years ago, I read James Davison Hunter's book, To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. And he took a look at how Wilberforce addressed that transatlantic Mm. slavery you just mentioned and really focused on overlapping networks. So when we started talking about intersectionality, it reminded me of the Wilberforce overlapping networks observation. And I feel really encouraged that what you're projecting is a call for those overlapping networks with the eco-specialists and the business people and government and the faith-based community and civil society. We have to have a lot of overlapping networks to create a safety net that no child is going to slip through. Exactly. Exactly right. And I would throw in a lot of other networks. We've just done a lot of work for the U.S. military about educating soldiers that are sent all over the world so they will recognize these types of abuse and exploitation and slavery and trafficking and and be able to report back and understand how to address them. Because we have thousands and thousands of of U.S. soldiers all over the planet. And And it sort of goes on not just from them, but from from people who are concerned about child marriage and and certainly the situation of slavery that it explodes whenever there's a conflict. 90% of the conflicts in the world today have slavery as part of their how they're being prosecuted. It's, it's fun, fundamentally tactical slavery and often strategic slavery as well, which actually takes you to the situation of, of genocide and slavery and their linkage and like that. So I think the more we understand how this all fits together, it it begins to teach us which thread do we pull to unravel this nasty knot. Well, we are going to be following you to see which thread you're going to pull next. Yeah, I wish I knew too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I'm always inspired by the, the flow of ideas and challenges And I'm grateful for your leadership and the fact that you have been doing this for 35 years. So we're going to keep doing that. I think we have to have another interview because we ran out of time to go a little deeper. But thank you so much, Kevin. Oh, it's been great to be with you, Sandy. I really appreciate the opportunity. We're inviting you to take the next step to go over to endinghumantrafficking.org. That's where you can find resources we've mentioned in this conversation and so much more. The Anti-Human Trafficking Certificate Program here at the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University has new classes starting every eight weeks. If you haven't visited our website before, this is a great first step for you. Become a subscriber and you'll receive an email with the show notes with every new episode. And of course, I'll be back in two weeks for our next conversation.